Hi, and welcome to the Drum Podcast on Everything Negotiations with your host, Mike Lander. The aim of our show is to give you practical negotiation insights from global marketing industry experts. We're all about actionable insights. We want you to take away one or two things per episode that can help you move the ball forward in your business. We really hope you enjoy it. Please subscribe and keep coming back for more. Emily, fantastic to have you on the Marketing Negotiations podcast for The Drum. Really pleased you could make the time. I'm really looking forward to just, as we said, having a discussion around some topics. Um, but before we start, um, just broadly, do you just like to talk about um, your kind of, what's your current role, your background, and your proudest moment of the last 25 years? And I don't care if it's work or if it's personal or whatever it might be. Sounds great. Thanks for having me, Mike. My current role, I'm the CEO for McCann World Group in China. So looking after a couple of the agencies here uh, under the IPG banner. My background is not in agency. So I worked about 22 years on what we'd call the client side. So I started at Procter & Gamble for 11 years. Then I shifted to Apple, where I looked after Asia Pacific uh, retail marketing, then transitioned to Intercontinental Hotels Group, looking after um, the greater China portfolio as the chief commercial officer. Most recently, I was the CMO for Starbucks in China took a year off to write a book, and then came into this McCann World Group role. And I'm absolutely loving it as we're coming on three years. Fantastic. The book, Emily, what's the book? What was the book? <laughs> well, in fact, that, that was sort of my proudest moment. I feel a little bit like a child, but I love this question. Like, what's your proudest thing? <laughs> my daughter and I do HPGs every night, High Proud and Gratitude. We've been doing oh. it since... Haven't heard of that. Speak. High, proud, and gratitude. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And so I was like, what's your proudest moment? It sounds like our evening routine. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's a good question. And it's one of the reasons we made it our evening routine with our child, because so often I feel we work for the benefit of others, or we work yeah. so that others will be proud of us. It's not really in our vocabulary to say, I'm proud of myself. And I think, exactly. you know, it's it's good to get used to that because it's important to understand not to be prideful, but to understand, hey, what have I accomplished that I actually think is worth talking about? Absolutely right. It makes us feel good about ourselves. And when we talk to others about, we did yeah. something that was good for the world today, good for and other people. Absolutely. I think confidence begets um, courage. Yes. Because once we have a sense of, hey, I can do this, then the next time I might lean even further or take on a hairier goal. Ah, so, so my, now that I want to explore yeah. as we have our discussion on negotiations, that oh, confidence <laughs> and the leaning in, mm -hmm. I think that's an enormous part of the differentiator between successful negotiations and those that are more stilted. But we'll come back to it later. That's fun. I, I have that thought as well. In fact, so so we will have a good conversation on that. We will. Yeah. The book, I think, required a great deal of um, courage, perhaps, because it was something that I've never done before. I've never written. I don't know how to write. I thought it'd be fun to produce in the traditional way by finding an agent and a publisher. Don't mm -hmm. know how any of these things are done. In fact, I remember talking to my husband and saying, finding a publisher to me reminds me of being in high school where kids <laughs> seem to have drugs. And I always wondered, where are they getting the drug? Like, where do you find a drug dealer when you're a 15 year old? You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. And, and how do they even know publisher? they exist? <laughs> right. It's, that part of the world is just a mystery to me. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, I wanted to write a book as a passion project to tell the stories of the 17 kids we've had in our spare bedroom. And more importantly... Hang on. To... Hang, whoa, 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 whoa. Because the audience won't, won't know. Oh, right, right. 17 children in your spare bedroom. What does that mean? 
So over the last 22 years, we've had 17 babies, children, and one young adult live in our spare room, just people who have um, been orphaned, who have not had a safe family situation, or just literally stumbled onto our porch. And we've had the opportunity to care for them, sometimes for as short of a period as six to eight weeks, as long as three and a half years. And um, over the years, I think people around us saw these children kind of circling in our, our home and asked a lot of questions. And I thought, you know, there's absolutely nothing extraordinary about us. The situation is a bit extraordinary. And I think we all have this opportunity to live extraordinary lives if we can embrace you know, what I call the social legacy, which is finding that intersection of what you uniquely offer and the thing that you can direct your offer against. And when, you, when you're willing to say yes and lean into those moments to the previous conversation on confidence, then you'll find these opportunities come to you. And as they do, you lean in with more and more courage each time because you've had, you know, proven successes behind you. And I wanted to tell that story because I think when people start reading ours and the other 15 stories in this book, they're going to start realizing you don't have to be extraordinary at all. In fact, you only have to take one small step. And anybody in any industry at any level can, can lean in and do so much more with this sort of one, one life, 100 years that we get on earth. And that one step, I mean, I don't know if it's a, if it is a, a, a Chinese proverb, but yeah, every journey starts with a step. Yes. And, and it's completely true, is that yeah. I was doing my end of year review last week and it's just me, I mean, as you know, it's kind of me. I do the hosting of podcasts and I do sales negotiation, uh, skills training and coaching with clients. And, and it's, sometimes it's lonely. You sit there on your own and, and, and you, you diligently do things. But when you look back over the year, or I look back over the year, I'm like, wow, what amazing clients I've worked with and amazing opportunities I've had because I've, 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 I've lent in. This podcast, Diane Young, the CEO of The Drum, said to me, Mike, why don't you host a podcast series for us? Kind of out of the blue, but it wasn't out of the blue because I'd taken steps to build a relationship with Diane professionally over a period of time, added value to the drum and the network, and then good things happen. Hmm. That's a great story. I, I'm an adjunct professor at NYU and wow. I teach a finance course for, for the master's program. And, and often people say, how did you get that gig? I took one small step. I kind of let it be known. I love teaching. And frankly, that's 90% of my job anyway, isn't it? It's constantly teaching, engaging, coaching. And then I started to meet one or two people and I thought, you know, if you ever have a need, please let me know. I would love to. And, and that's where things start to manifest. But we have to take that first step. People aren't going to read our minds and know what we want to do or what we're capable of if we don't take a little bit of backbone and courage and put it out there. Exactly right. So I'm conscious of your time and I won't abuse your time. So let's get into the questions, but an amazing background, just an amazing background around the spare room. So uh, let's talk about um, your unique perspective on marketing negotiations, because you've been client side and agency side. So can you talk about the kind of different negotiation perspectives? And kind of, if you can bring it to life with some stories, anonymized, if you can name them, great, but anonymized is great. Just some stories about that different perspective. The first thing that strikes me is this relationship is highly disproportionate. <laughs> and, and for somebody, we just talked about the offer and the offense, the model is about the win-win. It's about sort of equal sides. Um, as a client, working with an agency is a very, whether I'm a CCO or CMO, it's a very small part of my day-to-day -day job, right? It's maybe five to 10% of my job. I have so many other things going on that 
that the agency engagement is minor. On the other hand, for the agency, 100% of my livelihood, my joy, my stability comes from this negotiation. So the first thing that I think it's helpful for both sides to recognize is this is not an even playing field at all that we're starting on. Because you say it's disproportionate. So as an agency, if I was the agency leader and you were the CMO at Starbucks in China, so you've got this huge role. You're a massive deal for us as an agency because you're a an enormous brand. It's a great opportunity. More upsell opportunities, clearly. It, it's everything to me. It's it's kind of binary in many ways. Do we hit our year's numbers, blow them out of the water or not? And yet, as you say to you, yeah, but Mike, I've got 50 other things to do. This is just one of them today. And that's it. That's right. I, it reminds me of that psychological experiment they ran in an elementary school in the 70s, the blue eyes and the green eyes. So they made the children um, with blue eyes superior. And then the kids, uh, something like that, blonde hair, blonde hair, brown hair. And they basically set one artificially designed group to be over the other. And there were maybe fifth graders, sixth graders, obviously, this type of experiment would, would not run today. And, and what you see is, inevitably, whichever group was set as superior began to abuse the inferior group. And then the teachers swapped the groups and then the green eyes were in charge. And they did the same thing, even though they had been treated badly. They turned around and did the same thing. So when you're in a disproportionate relationship, it strikes me how much higher ground one has to take in order to treat the other party with respect and to think about the North Light, which is the North Light, the North Star or your lighthouse, right? To to say, here's what I want to get out of this relationship. So let me not take advantage because it is disproportionate. So Emily, how many I times... Love. How many times in a negotiation, this is a really, I, I think, one of the one of the foundation stones. Mm. When you start a negotiation, before it, there's been a sales cycle. So you've been selling to all mm-hmm. sorts of people, and then there's a negotiation around the commercial terms and the scope, everything else. Yeah. Very often, I find that simple question isn't asked, which is, what are your real interests here? Before we start the detail, what are the two or three big interests, not positions, but interests that are dear to you, what, what, you know, what, what's really important to you? Do you find the same? I, I do. I have I, some stories do come to mind, maybe one from each side of the, yeah, the table. I remember when I was the CCO for Intercontinental Hotel Group. In fact, I had a great agency group and I enjoyed working with them very much. But in the beginning, it was rough because I spent all this time as the CCO, you know, with my VP of marketing investing in, look, we have all these hotel brands. Here's what we want to accomplish. This is a major change management initiative. And I spent a lot of time trying to bring them into the fold and help them understand my ambitions. Then I remember negotiating the rate card which I took a little too seriously because I didn't know better. You know, I thought, okay, do I really need 70% of such a senior person? Let's negotiate to 65%. How about this person? Uh-huh. 50%. Do we need 40 or 5? Yeah. And we're talking through these numbers and I'm thinking, what is 45% of a person's time? How much are they inflating the 100 anyway? And, and if we finally land on this rate card, I'm thinking optimized against my objectives that I spent all this time to explain to you. And then I remember two weeks later, we had, we had picked an influencer to help us kick off a, the launch of a hotel indigo hotel. And my VP came into my office and she said, you know, they're upcharging us the celebrity fee. In fact, the celebrity posts their own rate online and the agency has just upcharged it. And I'm like, they don't understand us at all. That's just 
that's just, I don't want to use the word. That was, I was horrified. And that was just Outraged, so unnecessary. Incensed. Yes. And, and I was actually, I would say one of the good clients. I'm trying to bring you in. I want to show you my objectives. I'm showing you my strategic business plan. And this is how you treat me. So that was, you know, you, you have to, what do they say? You, you get the clients you earn. Now we did pivot the relationship. And I think from there it became much stronger and perhaps they hadn't been used to this type of relationship. So they were used to kind of clawing what they could. On the other hand, I would say as the agency now, I have found some challenges as well, not only in terms of the amount of upfront work that is often asked, right? The, the basics, um, the pitch process. But I do think there is a benefit to putting procurement in as a filter of sorts to optimize, optimize the relationship. But let's come back to that in a second. So yeah. let's, come back, let's come back to procurement in a second. On that side, the thing you talked about, about the agency negotiation, do you believe in pitching for free? Do you do creative work? free of charge when you're pitching for a client. What's your view? Do I believe in is a, is a, t- oh, <laughs> Sorry. I would say do you get asked a lot. I, we do, we certainly do. Right. And I think there are times when it is a reasonable ask. So, you know, let's put this into the real world perspective. If I go to a grocery store and I want to buy some tomatoes and I see them sitting there and I've eaten them before, I'm not going to say to the grocery clerk, hey, could I eat one first and just yeah, make sure? Exactly. <laughs> that, that's a little silly, right? Because I know the tomatoes. I can see them. I've had them before. So You know what they case, taste like. <laughs> I don't need a freebie. I, I would like to buy more tomatoes. <laughs> On the other hand, I've bought this beautiful piece of artwork. It's very expensive. I'm now looking for the perfect framing. I don't know your quality. Could you just show me what you can do? You don't have to frame my particular painting, but give me some examples of what you've done. And and tell me what you would do with my painting, because there are so many ways you might frame it. You don't have to frame my painting for the pitch, but you do have to show me what might it look like in other ones that you've framed. Yeah. That's the key. So it depends on what uh, our existing relationship is. It depends on the size and the value of what I'm holding in my hands. And then it depends on your own reputation and what you've done in the past. Yeah. And your familiarity with it. On both sides, you know, is it something that is is a well-trodden path, the tomato, or is it something that's very unusual and unique and bespoke, the painting? Brilliant. Very good. So procurement, let's come back to that procurement question around they have an important role to play, Mm -hmm. but not always. Just just talk a bit more about that, about how, how you think, what is the value of procurement and how that works? Well, I think on the client side, let me put on that hat. It's very helpful to have procurement because I'm going to build a relationship with this agency. I don't want to sit there and nickel and dime them. That's that's not a great way to start the relationship. So procurement coming in, by the way, they're experts at this and they understand the whole marketplace can come in and add a lot of value. However, when procurement is put in as a filter um, coming into the process later, to help me. So a lot of times what we see is first we we, we engage on the creative. Then the second round is Procurement comes in and cuts cost. That's where I find um, the sequence is a bit too linear. Because if, if our goal is an ideal partnership and we want to maximize productivity, then the step one creative step two procurement does not bring procurement at the beginning so they understand the objectives and what it is we're actually trying to achieve. Exactly right. And I think that's a common mistake. I don't know if you found the same across, I mean, you've, you've seen a lot of commercial deals on both sides is... Yeah, my experience is, is that, and I've been a procurement director, so like you, I've, I've been on both sides of the equation. Often, you know, when I was a procurement director, I used to work for private equity companies. Um, 
if I was brought in by uh, my internal business partner uh, on the buy side too late, and they were just like, they throw over the wall this contract that's badly formed, and they say, just get 20% more off the cost and we're all good. It always ended really badly. I felt like I don't know what's going on, so I've got no context. So I'm going to focus on the lowest common denominator, which is price, unit price. And the agency then goes, well, this is a waste of time. All that creative work now has gone out the window. You might don't understand what we're trying to achieve in the business, but you do understand about how to negotiate a contract. just goes wrong. Whereas when I'm brought in at the beginning and I shape the expectations with the client and we run workshops with the agencies rather than long-winded RFPs through a, a, a kind of a blind window, you know, unsurprisingly, it works really well. Absolutely. I'll give an example. I think sometimes procurement has great intention, but perhaps wording is underrated. So there's an example where we have been working on user experience, um, a digital UX project. And procurement came in and kind of said, look, you're going to have to do as many rounds as you can and show the work so that we can get to the end state. And in the space of UX, that totally makes sense. But the language was just on the, on the side of creating so much unnecessary work. So when we say we have to show the work, does that mean you have to build the entire back end every round and have the client play with it and then give feedback and then come back? Because the client doesn't understand necessarily how much back end work goes on. You know, our back end engineers don't necessarily understand why I, you can't just have a look at, you know, a wireframe or a mock-up. And it's all because in between there was this language and everyone's like, well, that's the language. So it was only when somebody was about to quit and say, this is insane that it got escalated to me. And I said, well, why is this insane? This is actually a great fun project. And I realized it was just so much unnecessary work on both sides. And then once you can sit down all parties in the room and say, look, this is the desired outcome. Of course, we'll do as many rounds. But just so you know, when we actually create a live demo, here's what it takes. Here's how many hours. Are you okay to just look at it in this other fashion? And the answer was, sure. <laughs> because you asked the question. That confidence when you said leaning into things. I think, uh, I remember like when I was, uh, so I was at KPMG, uh, an amazing place to learn how to be a consultant. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Some things in the firm, less good, but a vast majority of things were brilliant. I really enjoyed it. Um, and I remember there looking at partners and one of the skills that the partner had during either negotiations or the upfront pitching stage was the ability to ask a challenging question, but have something on the other side of it. So when they asked the question and a response came back, they could go to level two and level three and level four. And I think that's what you're describing is that you lean into the difficult question, but you need something to back it up when the answer comes back. Right. Absolutely. Otherwise, all that happens is you ask a difficult question, the client gives you a response, you've nowhere to go. And they go, well, in that case, we'll just carry on with where we were. Right. <laughs> and how do you do so? Um, I didn't put this into the few questions that we had, but as we're developing this, the kind of the rabbit hole we're, we're, I'm thinking of going down. Um, how do you train and develop? Um, I mean, how many people are there in McCann uh, in China uh, that you. Uh, About 450. So, how do you develop the the next generation of commercial leaders in your business to negotiate better deals with tough brands, tough clients, and procurement people to get the right outcome for both. How do you develop them? What do you do? Because you've got this vast experience. 
Mm. I'm actively involved in training and I lead, I've been leading for the last two and a half years, a lot of training myself, starting with, you know, folks were really interested in, as I looked after Starbucks in China, the the digital ecosystem, our our OMO online meets offline approach. I started explaining what we did from there. You know, everyone's really interested. Let me explain to you as a CMO, how I get this done and where an agency would fit. So then they understand, oh, the disproportionate nature of the relationship. And then I talk about how, here's how some of my other meetings go. You know, in a company, functions are designed to be at tension one with the other so that the best outcome will arise. In this respect, agencies are completely aligned with my objectives. So by the way, guys, you are the most fun part of a client's day. So why don't you approach it with fun? There's no need to, to fi- you know, file into the room, nervous, eyes downcast, quiet, whispering to one another. Be the fun partner. Be engaged. Proactively offer insights. Share something interesting you saw that the competition did. Be, be that person in my life. And then I started sharing, you know, I, I shared that I teach at NYU. I started sharing how we calculate ROI on the client side because I think agency folks, when they grow up in the agency, they look at ROI in the uh, construct of the agency world, which is fees. How much time I put in, the cost that I invest, and how much I get back. But that's not the ROI of the client at all. So helping them understand client ROI then allows them to kind of merge and say, how might we create co-aligned objectives and maybe construct even our contract differently? So these are all the, the layers of conversation that we've been having over the last few years. And it helps them feel much more savvy. It helps some of them actually get interested in working on the client side. It helps others say, I would never want to work on the client side. Either way, understanding more what the other side, what your partner is driven by, what their day-to-day looks like, their vocabulary can only make them more effective. So during those negotiations, let's just talk about that value piece for a second. Um, When I'm uh, training and coaching uh, commercial people in agencies, um, one of the things, and it's not that they don't know, I mean, we, we both know, Emily, that, you know, people know, yes, the client needs to create value out of the services we deliver. But when you talk about it and I say, look, as a buyer, if your fees are half a million dollars over the next 12 months, in my mind, I'm looking for at least $3 million and ideally $10 million of return, six to one or 10 to one. And what I say to people is I'm not looking for the exact spreadsheet science. I don't need it all to add up like an accountant. But you have to show me where the value creation is going to come from and broadly what the numbers are going to look like. Because if you can't do that, don't be surprised if I drive you down on price because you haven't created a value bridge for me in the discussion. So how do you how do you kind of approach that when you're developing uh, other people in the agency? I mean, A, do you agree that that's a problem? And B, what do you do about it? I think we have to get on the same vocabulary which is, you know, sort of the last piece. Because if we are aligned on what success looks like, then we can take it from there. I think there are times where success criteria are set completely unrealistically. Like if you are an auto brand and you're going to hold my advertising accountable to sales growth, (laughs) that that might be a little far. Yeah. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) On the other hand, I would actually um, dissuade clients from setting awareness, even engagement targets as KPIs, because there are ways when agencies want to make uh, their targets that they will deliver those numbers. And those are not really business driving behaviors. And because I worked on the client side, we won't do that at McCann. And we we don't want to engage in any of that. We want to 
create true value. So it comes back to the question of then what is value? And I think that that requires a more senior conversation, uh, maybe a top to top to sit down and say, look, tell me your ambitions for the year. Tell me what you really want to achieve. Okay, let's work through on a whiteboard what we want to hold ourselves accountable to in this partnership. Procurement should be in the room, but if we have that first conversation, then we can align on what it looks like. You will not be incentivizing bad behavior on the agency side. The agency will not feel constrained to something that is unrealistic. And everybody says, all right, I can live with that. Yeah. Client says, that would look like success for me if we can deliver it. The agency says, I understand how to get there. I'm motivated. That's exactly right. And it's that um, realistic expectations. It's language. Absolutely. Um, And it's also about causality. So what was in my mind was when you said it was, there's no point in an agency agreeing to be on the hook for a KPI if they've got a second, third or fourth order impact on that end goal. Right. Because it isn't going to work. Right. And you're just going to end up arguing over, well, did we achieve success or not? But that requires a lot of commercial experience, I think. And that's obviously what you bring to the table. I think there's another example. It's when sometimes clients change, right? So with one client last year, they wanted to measure awareness. And we said, okay, given the nature of this project, that makes sense. Let's do that. This year, a new client is there, same basic product. And they said, this year, we want to measure engagement. It also makes sense in the life cycle of the product awareness. Yeah. So we're looking at engagement. So now what's happened, you know, my, my general manager came to me and she's like, <laughs> we're beating our heads against a wall because he's saying that this year's engagement numbers are lower than last year's awareness numbers. <laughs> and you're like, yes. yeah, they're different. <laughs> they, they should be. Engagement numbers are generally lower than awareness numbers. So, so I brought in, you know, my, my course from NYU and I kind of, let, let's talk through the funnel. Here's what awareness looks like, how you drive conversion into engagement. But um, not a, to use your phrase, not everybody is commercially savvy. They don't understand the difference in numbers because if you don't deeply understand the metrics and the math behind, behind marketing metrics, awareness engagement by definition don't sound that different. So you really have to understand what you're measuring, where the data comes from, exactly. and what it's telling you. Absolutely. We could go on a lot. I mean, I'd like to go further around variations. For example, how do you, in a three-year framework, how do you then vary the contract as the client changes the KPIs so that you're not disadvantaged and that the client still gets the benefit? That's a separate topic, only. We'll come back to that another day. So- okay. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> So at the the very end, so first of all, thanks ever so much for for joining us. I I love our conversations. Hopefully we'll have more in the future. But what's the biggest piece of practical advice you could give to agencies in particular when faced with tough client negotiations? I have two questions that we should ask ourselves. What are we worth and what can we do? If we understand what we're worth, we don't do all the work up front for free and then find out, you know, they've mysteriously canceled the pitch. We don't below bid. We don't lower our bid and bid below cost. Uh, if we know what we can do, lean into it back to our very first conversation with confidence and build. So for instance, we've stood up a couple of new capabilities at McCann this year. And I think coming from the client side, it's given me that confidence to say, I know people want this. One is an advisory services that we should have, and we have incredible strength and we haven't sort of productized that capability. The second one is in entertainment marketing. Look, everyone's hiring a KOL. And as you can see in China, a lot of them are falling down. They're going to jail. They're, they're being, you know, 
accused of sexual harassment, tax evasion, and that has significant impact on the brand. So how can we help clients make better decisions, not just who's cool or hot today? So we've created an AI-driven intelligence engine that helps clients understand and integrate holistically, of course, the metrics that you always look at, right? The the awareness, the engagement, the fan base, et cetera. But you also look at their past success. You factor in their future projects. You look at their risk profile. You build a five-point attribute model that gives you an effectiveness score. We went and invested in developing this entire tool. It's now ready to go. Nobody asked for it. Agencies don't normally do that because that requires upfront cost. So we have to have the confidence to say, what am I worth and what can I do? Let me go build this thing I know the market needs, and then I will go talk to clients about it. Sometimes you have to put the cart before the horse in order to move forward. If we're always sitting behind the horse, we have one view, don't we? <laughs> and we're only sitting there in um, on our heels, responsive way versus proactively saying, I know I'm capable. I know I'm worthy. I will be a great partner to you. And let me show you what I can do. Just because I can't resist uh, what that made me think of again was... If in a negotiation, the client sees you as a commodity, well, don't be surprised if it ends up as a race to the bottom. If the if your counterparty sees you as being highly innovative, highly value-adding, creating value for their organization in a true and meaningful way, with a proposition that they can't find in the marketplace, you've got a more balanced negotiation. Right. And you don't have to yield on the rates, the price the commercial terms, because both sides are going to get value out of this. Yeah. Yeah. Emily, it's been amazing. Like really, really loved it. Amazing to talk to you and just have a discussion. Thank you very much indeed for uh, coming on uh, and being a guest on the, um, on the, the drums marketing negotiations podcast. Where can people yeah. find out more about you and about, uh, about McCann? At McCann, just uh, go to our website. <laughs> you can find me on LinkedIn. It's Emily Chang 8621. I'm glad to connect you to whomever you're interested in. Uh, you can also find me on website, social-legacy.com and connect with me personally. Mike, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Emily, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Drum Podcast series on Negotiation Insights with your host, Mike Lander. Please subscribe so that you'll catch the next episodes from our global marketing industry experts.